Welcome to a talk from St Saviour's Sunbury. We hope it blesses you. If you don't know me, most of you don't probably. Um, I was once uh, approached by an art student and they wanted to do a, a photographic sort of montage um, of who I was and they sort of got me dressed up in my school teaching garb and my chemistry textbook and all these sort of appurtenances to the trade and uh, you know and but it was worse than that because like they had to have my climbing boots had to be somewhere in the in the picture and uh, there was an odd claret jug which I think was more the drinks cabinet than the anything I've won playing golf um, and all kinds of things and this enigmatic tin of baked beans kept on coming up and uh, that was meant to symbolize the fact that they used to work and probably still do actually work uh, for a drop-in center at St. Stephen's. We've done it with my wife for the last 20 odd years and uh, so uh, I can empathize a lot with uh, what Ro was just saying of working in prisons and with people with addiction problems, uh, homelessness problems and all kinds of lack of identity, loss of self-confidence and all that sort of stuff. We know about these things uh, and we grieve and we, we struggle. I'm going to start with a little story, actually, um, before I forget it. Um, I was in the clubhouse, uh, uh, <laughs> a certain establishment the other day, uh, having just had a, a very muddy game of golf and I was changing my trousers uh, and one of the other players who uh, came in from the bar, he said to me, you're a Christian, aren't you? I said, yes. Wondering what's going on. He said, I'm an atheist. I said, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Um, uh, it was obviously leading somewhere. Um, so he said, well, 18 months ago, I was diagnosed with a very serious cancer, about 10% chance of survival. My wife is a Christian. I thought, yeah, well, that's good. I chose chemotherapy. My wife chose to get a group of friends together and pray. Nine months later, I'm healed. So I said, oh, did you thank him? He's got a birthday coming up soon. You might give him a present. He rather sheepishly backed out of the room at that point. But I just thought afterwards, how much... God must love this chap. Because first of all, poor chap being an atheist, you have to feel a little bit sorry. Uh, he, he, God gave him a Christian wife. That's pretty good. Good chance. Hear something of the gospel. He must love him even more because he healed him of a disease. And then you sort of start thinking upstairs, what's God's chatting to whoever? father to son or to spirit or they were having a conversation what more have I got to do to get this folks attention and when you look at the Old Testament you find a similar sort of story as Ron so uh, succinctly put it you know God was loving and faithful the people backslid God was loving and faithful the people backslid and so on and so on and the whole story kept on going um, I've got a little slide somewhere <laughs> A cue for number one. Let's see if you're awake up there. <laughs> I shout louder. Are you awake? <laughs> um, this is, I haven't been to London lately, 
so I haven't seen this in the flesh, as it were. Can we focus it better? Yeah, possibly. Um, I'm not going to say much about it. I'll just leave it hanging there uh, for a moment. Has anybody put your hand up? Have you actually been and seen this thing? It's on the fourth plinth, if you can say that sober. Okay, the fourth plinth. On the other side of it, it's got an inscription. This will give you a bit of a clue of what conceivable relevance it has to anything. It says, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, ruler of the world. There was a little cough in heaven at the last uh, phrase. Uh, (coughs) Excuse me, that job's uh, not available. Rule of the world is not actually down to you. It's down to me, says God. Anyway, Sennacherib was living and harassing Israel at the time of Isaiah. I will say no more for now. We might return to the story later. But he's possibly the cause or part of the cause why Isaiah wrote some of the things he did in his prophecies. Because always prophets, when they're criticizing the people for their sins, always give hope that there's a way out. God hasn't gone to all the trouble of making us for us then to have no way out. There is a way out. And that story is unfolding as we think and approach towards Christmas. Now, this was sort of, Sennacherib was about 700 BC. Various ups and downs happened over the next few hundred years, right down to Malachi. At the very, very last uh, book of the Old Testament, the last word of the last book, in some versions, is the word curse. Uh, it's not very hopeful. And things weren't going too well for Israel, really. And for 400 years, there was nothing much that God had to say that he hadn't already said um, until, well, we're coming up to Christmas. Two babies were required to do the job. We've just lit a candle. Um, I'm going to choose to call it. Different churches have different uh, assignations to the meanings of each candle, but I'm going to take it that today's candle is John the Baptist. Now, the circumstances of his birth were quite different from Jesus. We were thinking about with the the strictly and the role maybe that personality plays in people's judgments. Well, the personalities of John and Jesus were quite different. I did speculate at once when I was thinking about this as to whether they played together as children. Uh, I think probably not um, because they didn't live that close to each other. John was brought up in a very, very different kind of manner uh, from Jesus. He was born to a priest, um, Zechariah, in an extraordinary manner because he was old, his wife was old and barren, so there were angels involved, there were miracles involved in his birth. And the religious community were alerted to his birth right from the start. So John was more of a celebrity. He grew up a hairy prophet, the stereotypical prophet, right from birth. And the the people knew it. He didn't start prophesying until God said go. 
um, which is some 30-odd years later. But all that time, he was known. He lived in caves, um, eating wild honey, dressed in, you know, the things you imagine prophets um, dress in. But when the time came, and Jesus, on the other hand, was a sort of chippy's son and, and grew up under the radar, really. Nobody, after the initial flourish of a few shepherds and foreigners seeing, his, his birth and childhood and so on were largely under the radar, an unknown person. I don't think John and Jesus had much to do with each other at all. But then God said, right, the time's right to John to get on with the job. And the job he'd been given, basically, was to, if you like, the warm-up act um, for Jesus' coming. The people were in a pretty poor state uh, 400 years ago when Malachi uh, preached, and they didn't get much better uh, by the time John came, and he had to give more or less the same message again. They'd been promised a Messiah, Isaiah had promised for the people who are being harassed by Sennacherib and the people following on that in the future there would be a Messiah coming. But of course, 400 years with nobody reminding you of that, things can get a bit slack. So John was quite a loud personality and he set to work preaching, wake up, the Messiah is coming, the King is coming. What sort of preparation do you need to make when somebody's visiting your house? In our case, um, it's probably the only time we do much vacuuming uh, to make the place clean. But if you had royalty coming to your house, you might make a bit even more effort. What if royalty's coming in the form of the Messiah? What sort of change is required? John preached... To prove to people that they were sinful. They, they knew it. But in every area of life, there were things wrong. Their religious practices were formal, dull. Their moral life was no good either. And yet God, the Holy One was going to come to visit them. What were they going to do? How are they going to respond? And it's interesting that John uh, got three different categories of people coming to him. Ordinary folk, he said, if you've got two coats, give one to somebody who's got none. I think at St. Saviour's we do that a fair bit. He said the same over, if you've got plenty of food, share it with those who've got none. Tax collectors came to him and said, what do we do to show repentance? He didn't tell them to stop being tax collectors, but he did tell them to be just, to only collect what was required, not lie in their own pockets, not be fraudulent. Soldiers came to him and said, what should we do to show our sincere repentance? He didn't tell them to stop being soldiers, perfectly valid job. But don't bully, don't extort, don't frighten people unnecessarily. You don't do rape, murder, and pillage just because you're a soldier. That's not your job. That's an abuse of your job. The Pharisees came. 
as spectators. And John rounded on them and said, who warned you, brood of vipers, to come and show apparent repentance? It's no use just being a spectator. You've got to show change. Demonstrate the reality of your repentance. Our, our strapline in the church is radically transformed lives. That's the evidence that real repentance has happened. You can't just uh, talk airily, fairly about it. God expects change right down deep. Not doing more church services. It's the heart that he matters. We had uh, a mission at uh, St. Stephen's about 20 years ago, which made us all really squirm. I think we might have something similar lined up in the spring, but I hope it won't make you squirm, but I'm warning you in advance. It was J. John doing the Ten Commandments in reverse order. But whatever order you do them in, he proved utterly, completely, totally that we've broken all ten of them multiple times, multiple, multiple, multiple times, and we squirmed through ten weeks, ten, nine, eight, seven, six, the whole jolly lot. And, of course, he made it worse by referring not just to the Genesis, uh, the Exodus Ten Commandments, but he thought, and Jesus made matters worse by saying, if you've even thought of adultery, I don't know why I choose to start that. Well, I do know why I choose to start with that one. Even if you've thought it, you're guilty. If you've thought, I could kill that bloke who's just cut me off in the car, road rage. If you've thought murderous thoughts, that is also sin. You haven't got a hope. Jesus looked... At the Pharisees, and uh, they were criticizing him for not washing his hands and things like that. Uh, I'd, st I'd started this, uh, thinking about this talk about holiness and, and so on, and thinking of the Holy of Holies in our house is a very white carpet which enshrines not the ark but a flat screen television that's going to be showing Manchester United being slaughtered this afternoon or something. Um, the Holy of Holies meant you had to take your shoes off. You can't go in there with the mud and so on uh, of the outside world. And it's, it's really annoying. Uh, <laughs> but still more with God. Still more with God. You can't go into his presence with sin at all. So what's to do? The problem, as, or as J. John used to say, at the heart of the problem... Do you, know, what, do you remember this, the other half of this? Little, he's, he's good for one-liners. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. And this is, of course, where we all come unstuck, the problem of the heart. Jesus, later on, when um, he was starting his ministry, talked about John the Baptist and who he was. And he described him as the last and the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets. He was the Elijah who was going to come to prepare the way. So he gave him full credit for being that. But he was still Old Testament. 
John's message was repenting and baptizing, but the Old Testament um, system couldn't actually cure the problem of sin. It could define it. I had the problem of sin defined for me last summer by um, Dorset Constabulary. Um, I thought 47 miles an hour was all right because I thought it was a 50 mile an hour area, but it wasn't, it was 40. The law just shows you you're a sinner, basically, but it can't cure it. No man can cure it. Ron stole my lines last week. He's always stealing my lines. It's the same gospel, I suppose, that's why. Uh, talking about cleaning things. I'm a chemist. I ought to know how to clean things. I can invent things that would take lime scale away and red wine stains off carpets and all kinds of things. But you can't clean the human heart, however hard you scrub, however hard you try. Jesus said it's out of the heart that all kinds of evil things come um, and they defile a man. So where do we get to the point? Jesus was the one that John was sent to say was coming. I've got number slide, number, slide number two. might uh, shock you a little. We haven't had a Bible reading yet. Not because it's forbidden, but in some quarters it is forbidden. There are some people in some groups who are strongly discouraged from reading this chapter because they know it's dynamite. Well, let's see if it turns out to be dynamite in your life. It was certainly dynamite for the Ethiopian that uh, uh, we read about in Acts 8, where my namesake, Philip, uh, explained that this passage in Isaiah 53 was all about Jesus. And it was written, obviously, hundreds of years before he came. And that is something uh, that's quite remarkable. Let's just read what it says, and we'll see if we can cope from there. Now, we've got the actual NIV version up there. I'm going to confuse everybody by reading it from the message because I can probably read it slightly uh, quicker that way. If you've ever heard the Messiah um, by Handel, then you'll know a lot of these verses come from, from this chapter. I'm going to, this is uh, starting in uh, Isaiah 52. Just watch my servant blossom, exalted, tall, head and shoulders above the crowd, but he didn't begin that way. At first, everyone was appalled. He didn't even look human. A ruined face, disfigured, past recognition. Nations all over the world will be in awe, taken aback. Kings shocked into silence when they see him. For what was unheard of, they'll see with their own eyes. What was unthinkable, they'll have right before them. Who believes what we've heard and seen? Who would have thought God's saving power would look like this? The servant grew up before God, a scrawny seedling, a scrubby plant in a parched field. There was nothing attractive about him, nothing to cause us to take a second look. He was looked down on and passed over, a man who suffered, who knew pain firsthand. 
One look at him and people turned away. We looked down on him and thought he was scum. But in fact, it was our sins he carried. Our disfigurements. All the things wrong with us. We thought he brought it on himself. That God was punishing him for his own failures. But it was our sins that did that to him. That ripped and tore and crushed him. Our sins. He took the punishment that made us whole. Through his bruises, we get healed. We're all like sheep who have wandered off and gotten lost. We've all done our own thing, gone our own way. And God has piled all our sins, everything we've done wrong, on him. On him. He was beaten. He was tortured. But he didn't say a word. Like a lamb taken to be slaughtered, and like a sheep being sheared, he took it all in silence. Justice miscarried, and he was led off. And did anyone really know what was happening? He died without a thought of his own welfare. Beaten bloody for the sins of my people. They buried him with the wicked, threw him in a grave with a rich man even though he'd never hurt a soul or said one word that wasn't true. Still, it's what God had in mind all along, to crush him with pain. The plan was that he gave himself as an offering for sin so that he'd see life come from it, life, life and more life, and God's plan will deeply prosper through him. Out of that terrible travail of soul, you'll see that it's worth it and be glad he did it. Through what he experienced, my righteous one, my servant, will make many righteous ones as he himself carries the burden of their sins. Therefore, I'll reward him extravagantly, the best of everything, the highest honors, because he looked death in the face and didn't flinch, because he embraced the company of the lowest. He took on his own shoulders the sin of the many. He took up the cause of all the black sheep. A little while ago, I went uh, with a, a visitor to Southwark Cathedral. I'd never been there inside before. I looked in and uh, I thought it was very gloomy, dark and oppressive. I went out again and I didn't, didn't really like it. I thought, well, maybe I've gone the wrong place. Maybe there's a, a bigger, brighter, better uh, area. And I went in again and I looked and I could see why it was so dark and so black. And the way they'd done it is they'd put a big net over the chancel area and above it they'd filled with black balloons like a huge cloud hundreds and hundreds of black balloons bearing down oppressively and there was a cross underneath. And then I understood because it was Maundy Thursday or something, it was just before Easter. I didn't actually see which balloon had my name on it, but it was probably out there somewhere. It was symbolic of all of our sins, like a weight and a cloud hanging over I don't know what they did. 
on Easter Sunday. I wasn't there, but I can imagine there was a loud popping sound and another and another and another as they joyfully burst all these balloons, I imagine. The victory over sin had been won. Jesus had taken all the gloom on himself. It's easy to be heavy and say we're all sinners and so on. This is true. But obviously the Christmas message is part of the Easter message, which is that we can be free. We can have life. Life abundantly because he took it all on himself. John the Baptist pointed to Jesus right after his baptism. He said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That's your sin, my sin. But he does more than that because whereas John only baptized with water, Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So that not only are we wiped clean of the past, we're actually given strength for the future and a seal of blessing uh, that we carry around with us in our lives, that we are God's children. Now suppose John the Baptist was standing here beside me now talking about preparing the way for the Lord because actually he is coming back. I can't say it will be on the 25th of December because nobody knows when he's coming back. But he is coming back. And he repeatedly asked us all, Christian or not, to be ready. But Christians indeed, to be ready for his return. We don't know when it will be. How are we going to be ready? What would John criticize in our society I feel very ashamed when I look at the way our society has gone in so many ways. Um, probably uh, I feel guilty because it's my generation uh, that have sort of seen the slide happen and we failed to stop it happening. Um, we should have witnessed strong, more strongly. Uh, so we apologize to the young for <laughs> the mess you're inheriting from my generation's mistakes or... Uh, ultra silence as witnesses but we do need to be ready not just for the Christmas day we need to be ready for Jesus return he wants to come back and find us doing the things that he's gifted us and called us to do we've all been given gifts of one sort or another small large and he wants to find us doing them we're supposed to be reading our Bibles. We're supposed to be praying for one another. We had those leaflets given out a year ago with a daily series of people and groups to pray for. We need to be actually doing it. I'm saying this to myself. I'm hearing John the Baptist telling me this. Um, we do need to do these things to sharpen our act, as it were, to be more bold in our witness because there is hope not in, you know, the way things are going. Could be, we, we could be heading for quite difficult times. I'm not going to get political, but we could be heading for quite difficult times. And we need to get our act together so that people can see that there's a light burning brightly, however dark it may be outside. God calls us. Because the one time 
that he comes back next. He won't be the lamb ready for slaughter. I haven't uh, used all my slides, have I? Um, you can you can scroll through them slowly uh, while I'm talking because I've missed them out. Uh, the one time he's coming back, he's coming back as the lamb who's on the throne. Jesus isn't a cuddly toy anymore. He's not coming as the baby. It's nice and sentimental. He's coming back as the judge of the entire earth. And there's a, a feast being prepared in heaven. We're not invited. We're actually the bride. We're actually, the church is the bride of the Lamb when he comes back. We're not just guests. We are the bride of Christ for eternity. That is something to be, well, it's mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing. God loves us that much. He died for us that the church can be his bride, that we can be with him forever in heaven. That little thing on there, I'm backtracking a bit. If you can read it, the bottom little bit says J.B., John the Baptist. If you look hard, really hard, you can see his left arm looks to be a bit longer than the other arm because it's an arrow pointing to Jesus. And the other bit, that's still a bit, it's my bad art, really. There's a broad road there that the majority of people are on. And there's a narrow gate and a narrow way that leads to life through the cross of Jesus. We've had a lot of things about democracy and we have, must do the will of the people. I'm not going to get political. But the majority aren't necessarily right. The majority in Moses' time voted to go back to Egypt because they had better jobs there, more food, more water, more security than the uncertainty of walking through a desert. They were wrong. The 12 church leaders who were chosen to go and suss out the promised land came back with a 10-2 majority. Except they were wrong. The two were right, the 10 were wrong. There's a way there that seems right to the world, but it ends in death. There's a narrow way that John was pointing to and we're pointing to that's Jesus. We need no apology for saying that he is the only way. For more information about St. Saviour's, please visit our website at www.stsaviourssunbury.org.uk. Thank you.